0: This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and
1: ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonisation as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. We had a really interesting session looking at the really high level, what's the vision for the future? of transport what we're now going to do is zoom in a little bit um, and look at the way we move people around uh, cities and regions Um the way we tailor our transport is really important um, the same solutions uh, potentially needed worldwide but potentially need uh close tailoring depending on the solutions that the the places they're being applied to with their unique uh, opportunities and their unique challenges and I think a way of illustrating that for me personally, at least, is I started my journey in the village this morning uh, out in the sticks. Uh, one bus a day in, one bus a day out. Really, really helpful for the public transport point of view. Um, I then made my way to Milton Keynes, um, which is delightful. Uh, do go there. Um, but uh, one of the really exciting things about Milton Keynes is um, it's uh, been really well thought through. The transport system, the roads have wide verges, very wide verges, in case a new transport solution was to come in through in the future. So the way that the transport solutions of the future can be applied in Milton Keynes is potentially quite exciting. I then made my way by train into London, and obviously we've got a, a long and historic uh, city, uh, history on that city, uh, and it's a bit more organic, the growth and perhaps applying those solutions would be a, a slightly different challenge, but a different opportunity as well. Um, so this is a session to really explore those challenges, those opportunities, um, and our moderator today is Charlotte Warburton, Head of Transport and Public Sector Sustainability and Climate Lead at Deloitte.
2: Good morning. Isn't this exciting? Glad to see we've got another full house in transport. Uh, we're going to be dynamic, which is what transport needs to be. So we are going to hopefully have a third panellist guest joining us so shortly. They are just dashing across the uh, the capital from Westminster. So let's hope transport does its job and gets him here on time, right? So I'm going to start with the panel introduce themselves in terms of who they are and what they're rep- representing before we get into the session. So Graham, if you want to start us off, please.
0: Hi, Charlotte. Um, good morning, everybody. I was hoping to see a bit of the first session to get a bit of context, but too busy. So, uh, at least I managed to get a seat in this one. Um, so yeah, I'm Graham Bannister. I'm a sector director at mobility ways. Um, we help large organizations measure, reduce and report their commuting emissions. Um, commuting is 5% of the UK's total carbon footprint. Um, we've obviously heard about how much transport is. So it's about 20% of all the transport emissions come from commuting. So we help large organizations get a hold of that and get a grip of it. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Nice to be here, nice to see you all. Uh, I'm Chris
3: Hook. I lead sustainability for Uber. Um, Hopefully many of you have heard of Uber, um, but we are a business that operates in cities all over the world. Um, And my job is to try and ensure that we're on a path to uh, reducing our emissions and our footprints through encouraging the uptake of things like zero emissions vehicles, and other ways to move around cities. So I'm very interested to, to have this discussion about how we think about all the ways in which we can move people um, in the cities and regions in which we live.
2: Great, thank you. So before we get into it, I was just going to reflect on a couple of the takeaways I took from yesterday. I spent quite a lot of time in the catalyst area uh, and thought it was really interesting. I think we might have our guest. We'll let him get mic up before we, we bring him down. Um, I think for me, one of the three messages I took away which applies to this topic Duncan do you want to go real time and just introduce yourself so we're just getting going doing intros and uh, what does your organization represent in this space?
4: Uh, It represents lateness Uh, sorry I'm a bit late so uh, Duncan Walker chief exec and founder of a company called Skyport Um, we do two things predominantly we fly autonomous beyond visual line of sight drones that's sort of 25 kilogram aircraft that can fly 150 miles, delivering medical samples, surveillance and inspection we deliver to ships, um, humanitarian stuff. And we also build what we call vertiports, which are heliports for the new passenger carrying drones, so all electric vehicles, which will be certified next year and operational in places like Dubai and the US by 2025.
2: Thank you. So to recap, I think what I took away from yesterday was three things. You'll all have different views because we all have different perspectives and there was a lot talked about. But one is actually we need to speed up what we're doing. So in the context of moving people around cities and regions, how are we speeding up how we're decarbonizing the journey and improving the service and actually doing that collectively. So that's something we're hoping to explore today. And for me, was the second was around um, stimulating greater demands and changing of behaviors of customers be it organizations and citizens one of the key takeaways I I, I I took was you know the gap between saying and doing is still fairly significant and carbon is not really in the top five priorities of our citizens so how do we apply that lens um, in a transport perspective and then the third was the circularity aspect and when Chris Skidmore was talking about his um, zero mission report actually thinking about that from the circularity lens so how do we optimize the materials and the uses we have rather than creating more. So putting that together in the concept context of moving people around cities and regions, um, how do we rethink transport and mobility? How do we maximize what we've got, maybe reduce ridership, that's controversial and green the mobility service? Um, So the first question I'd like to start with is big picture. So, gents, what do you think the experience should be for passengers, citizens moving across cities and regions in the future? Brian, do you want to go first?
0: Yeah, yeah. So I think in a a net zero future, so you mentioned experience, so I'd kind of keep the theme of ease. So I'd go for equitable. Yeah. I think it needs to be um, available to all in society. um, And I think that's both from an affordability perspective but I think that's also in terms of how it's delivered. And what I mean by delivery is it's app agnostic. So obviously we'll hear from Uber in a second, but I think it needs to be something that it doesn't matter which delivery mechanism the the user wants, it's available for them and they get the same consistent level of service. So that's equitable. And then related to service, I would say it's elevated. It needs to be elevated. So we need to be thinking about continual improvement in services Um, And that comes from uh, data-driven. We have to be data-driven even more. We have to really, really go for that in terms of its monitoring and evaluation so that we actually get to the place where the right infrastructure and the infrastructure needs to be different in cities as compared to regions. And we absolutely understand that. But the right infrastructure is delivered to allow people to more easily move to um, active and shared transport.
2: Thanks, Greg. So Chris, building from that, like when we met earlier, we talked from an Uber lens, not just about passengers, but also businesses. How do you see the future of people and businesses moving around with I think, reasons from... A,
3: yeah, Uber? I think I think just building on that, I mean, people want it to be easy, right? Yeah. Like people being able to get from where they are to where they need to be um, is a crucial part of our economy, is a crucial part of, of people's everyday lives. It needs to be as effortless as possible. Um, and I think that's about doing the work to try and connect the system up um, and then to do the work to make that transport have the least possible impact. So things like moving to a mass adoption of electric vehicles, but uh, more adoption of, of active travel, connecting different modes of transport together in a, in a more seamless way, I think is, is allowing people to, to take away some of the complicated decision-making that often is involved in how do I get from my village in Milton Keynes to Olympia. Um, and to make that as easy for people as possible.
2: So taking the whole system view. I think so, yeah. And what do you think, we're, we're going to go down a rabbit hole, we'll come back out in a minute, but you know, what do you think are the things we struggle with today in getting that whole system view?
3: I think we struggle with the join-ups often wow. uh, in terms of, you know, there's lots of technology that's been deployed over the last you know, five or 10 years that helps people make plans, but they don't necessarily, they can't pay for the journey in one uh, consistent way. They don't necessarily have all the information at their disposal around the trade-offs they're making between time, convenience, impact on the planet, et cetera. And so I think there's there's more information that can be shared um, and then there's more integration that can happen to make those join-ups as seamless as possible.
2: Thank you. And Duncan, from your lens, how do you see the future of movement between cities and regions evolving?
4: Yeah, I think, so from an aviation perspective, aviation is obviously one of the biggest contributors um, to... Carbon pollution uh, as a form of transportation, um, and 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 what does it need to be to to reduce that um, those carbon emissions? Well, it needs to be convenient. People aren't going to make a choice altruistically most of the time unless it is convenient. If it's a, a function of going somewhere that's going to take twice the time or twice the cost, people aren't going to do it realistically. So it needs to be convenient predominantly, and it needs to have a business case that. Uh, meaningfully closes, both for the provider and for the user of the service. So when we're thinking about passenger transportation by drone in cities, you know, is that a great way to reduce uh, congestion or reduce pollution? If you're going somewhere, which has already got an existing tube network, which is very efficient, not really. <laughs> it's not There's okay, there's zero emission in flight, but there's emission in producing the vehicles, in producing the infrastructure, um, where we focus is those connections in cities, which have poor ground infrastructure. Uh, so it is inconvenient, difficult, and requires taxis or coaches, things which are uh, contributors to pollution um, significantly. And also in suburban or rural environments where the ground infrastructure is poor, either because of the topography, we in mountains, lakes, rivers. Uh, or because the density of traffic is relatively low. So it doesn't warrant high speed rail links or whatever the alternatives are. So, so for me, it's about it's consumer convenience and also, uh, a a business case, which is efficient from the operator's perspective and, and cost saving from the user's perspective.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I think there's lots in there of painting the picture of the future. I suppose now what I'm interested in is how do we get to action? So, you know, from your perspectives. What more do we need to do, do you think, to come together, look at this holistic view and actually get to the point of action where we can make these futures happen? So what do we need to do differently? What's the greater role of technology and innovation? What more do you need from regulation? How do we change behaviours? I I don't know who wants to start.
4: Well, I'll I'll, I'll have a go at that. The reason I'm late is because I came from a meeting um, with the Aviation Minister at at, the Department of Transportation about the implementation of uh, drones and passenger air taxis in the UK. So I sit on a panel called the Future Flight Group um, which is great, government panels aren't really my thing but it's action focused so it's okay. I also sit on the same in Dubai where uh, we are, are implementing infrastructure there for um, for the same thing. The answer to the question is we need policy to be uh, both highly aligned with the future uh, and where we want to get to but also highly action focused. The, the difference between the approach in Dubai and the approach in the UK is stark. Mm. They make things happen at frightening and lightning speed. You need land availability. They either own it or they'll get it for you. You need electrification of the sites. It's done within an instant. You need policy change. They'll do it straight away. Um, not representative of many other places in the world, but that's what we need if we want direct, quick action, um, and moving towards that model in a highly democratic environment like the UK or the US is quite a challenge.
2: And do you think, Duncan, you're at the point from your perspective that you can't take any more action till that's achieved? And I ask that slightly loadedly because there was a comment made yesterday on, on the Catholic stage by one of the ministers around the cost of inaction from industry and consumers today whilst we're waiting for policy is almost as um, costly as not having the right policy.
4: Yeah, I'll answer it in a slightly different way. If you look at how I allocate the capital I have in my business and the people I have in my business, it's those places where there is direct action. So I have more people in Singapore than I have in London. London's HQ, London's where I started the business, but I now have more people in Singapore than London because they make stuff faster. got
2: clarity, there. right? Yeah. You've got clarity of incentives. Chris, do you want to come in?
4: I think regulation has a massively important role
3: to play in terms of ensuring that everything moves together and we don't get pockets where you know, places are running ahead, services are great, and other places are left behind. Um, and it provides that platform for businesses to invest um with a with a degree of certainty. I think in in certain parts of the transport ecosystem, I think mostly about passenger cars at the moment, for example, a lot of the the hardware technology is there, right? Like we we've seen a lot of investment from manufacturers, not as much as we ultimately need to by any means, but the 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 wheel has started moving. Um we've been working on this problem for the last five years. The difference between one I started thinking about how we electrify Uber's business in London, for example, and where we are now is, is night and day. Um, but uh, that is still only you know, the, the beginning of that S-curve. We're still in the early adopter phase. Um, the trajectory is you know, encouraging, but it's not getting us to where we want to ultimately be probably at the pace that we need to go to come back to your original point about speed. Yeah. Um, and so I think regulation can be, um, and policy in general, is an incredibly important catalyst um and then helps people build with confidence uh, for the direction that we're going and ensure that we're that we're not leaving communities behind or certain parts of the country behind um, whilst others race ahead.
2: Great. Graham, do you want to build?
0: Yeah, I mean I think there's a there's a big element of policy, but it's also massively behaviour change. Mm-hmm. It's just the change is not happening. So we have to be bolder, we have to be more ambitious. You have to reflect on on where we are, particularly with transport. The emissions are not going down. We have a, a transport decarbonisation plan that was launched in July of twenty one. Um, that has been now been seriously watered down into, a, I think it's called Climate Budget Delivery Plan, I believe it's called, uh, launched in March. Um, if you want to know more about the sort of watering down, i definitely uh, have a look at CREDS. So that's uh, the Centre for Research into Demand Energy, lots of acronyms, something like that, CREDS. And Decarbonite, Decarbonate, they've done a paper about called Reverse Gear, so I'd look at that. Um, so, there's a massive problem here. You know, we're watering down policy. We're not getting into the behavior change piece. Thankfully, from a mobility ways perspective, um, A, we've been doing behavior change for 20 years. There are still some things in the carbon budget delivery plan, which re- relate to what we do. So an element is commute zero, which is about working with employees to employers to encourage long-term change in employee travel, um, looking at support to research, support and encouragement. Is there any money? I've no idea because how do you encourage without money? You need incentives. Um, and the second part is about just where cars are concerned, increasing um, car occupancy. Um, but again, we, don't, we have a lack of ambition in this country. Uh, that, that part of the plan talks about 700,000 tons of CO2 savings by 2033. Take France, they're, they're looking at 4.5 million tons of CO2 saved through car sharing every year.
2: But just building on that a little bit more, right? So lift sharing, new business models, behavioral nudging. Can you give me a bit more like dig into the detail? How do you think we incentivize citizens to change their behaviors?
0: Well, we, we take a view that it's employers are a massive component, part of it. Again, thinking about our, our niche a little bit in terms of commuting 20% of all transport emissions, that's because of people going to work to their place of employment. Um in this country we don't have as they do in other countries um a requirement for the employer to fund or part fund travel um it's the requirement of us to get ourselves to work um now thankfully the uh the companies that we work with we work with several hundred um principally uk so nhs trusts universities local authorities um they recognize that they need to do something they need to put something into the pot so whilst they're not paying for you know me to have um, uh, uh, travel across London or whatever it might be, they recognise that they need to put incentives in place yes. so that could be also them feeding its way into policy in terms of the actual company's policy but it's then things about like preferential parking it can be incentives which can be free food, free drinks it can be cash we have some clients who literally stick cash in a pot and say car sharers, at the end of the month, top car sharer you get 150 quid So it's a different way of doing it um perhaps other countries are doing it in a better way by actually just paying for public transport because that's the best way to do it but we're getting there we're doing some things and we're helping to kind of drive uh, employees to do more
2: and chris from an uber perspective because obviously you have like the lift sharing option in the app how much are you seeing of that kind of uptake for uber and what's your perspectives on maybe driving more of it
3: yeah we certainly in the long term we think that the model is a is a shared and electric model. We have a shared rides product. Um, we had been growing that before the pandemic. For obvious reasons we shut it down during the pandemic, it's now coming back. Um, and that's about using our technology and the size of Uber's network to try and find ways to help people be more efficient. The incentive there is cost. Yeah. Right. If you if you've got two people who are going broadly the same direction and we can use the the technology to match you, um the the ride becomes much, much cheaper. Um and it's helping to bridge gaps and fill gaps where, yeah, maybe public transit networks aren't working, aren't um, in operation. Some of what uh, we're talking about here in terms of you know, parts of the country where we don't have those strong infrastructure or we want to fill the gaps between um, between nodes, um, those shared products can, can really work. Um, but people resist doing that if it's inconvenient or expensive. Yes. And so trying to make it as convenient as possible and as cheap as possible um, is the real secret.
2: Thank you. And Duncan, from your perspective, some exciting new ways of travelling around between cities and regions. What do you see as kind of the key barriers to get the customer to change? I think
4: it's exactly right. It's pri- it's price and convenience, right? And it, I think there's a, also a, a sort of weird bit of psychology about it as well, in the sense that am I prepared to share transportation with other people? Absolutely, yes. I get the train every day, yeah. bus, whatever. Am I, I sit on air? I sit on aeroplanes. Am I prepared to get an Uber with other people? No, it freaks me out. I don't want to do it. I don't know why, but it's <laughs> it just feels a bit weird. Um, and it, so I think it's it, it, there's there's sort of the pricing convenience bit, and there's also the the education piece around it about why you know you, you, the other three aren't serial killers, probably. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and and we have the luxury, and there's a new industry as well. So when when we're pitching the industry. Um, it, it's very much about ride sharing. It's very much about uh, um, uh, load factors, utilization. That's the way aircraft, in fact, most most transportation work on load factors. Um, so I think there's also the marketing pieces. Like, how do you convince people who are used to a taxi, in particular, or, or an air taxi, being a private form of transportation? How do you change that mindset to to prove that it can be a nice way to save money and and carbon emissions?
2: Yeah. Similar experience. I was never into ride sharing. And then I find myself in the States in a, a sleepy village, booked a taxi and it turned up and had four other people in it. And I was like, this was not my taxi, but supply and demand. There weren't enough taxis in the city. So I had to either get the ride share or I'd have to walk. So I think there's also an element of supply and demand in all of this, right? Take me to my next point, but if we were to think about the circularity aspect and optimizing the capacity we have versus putting more public transport and more cars on the roads. How do you think we get better integration between the modes so that we are encouraging passengers to use the capacity that is there? And how do we move from a competing for customers to looking at the holistic model to give the best service to them? I don't know who wants to go first on that
4: one. Yeah, I I think um, reliability is absolutely key. You know. When I think about a modal shift in my journey that point of friction is key to my decision making um, if I know I'm going somewhere which has got a fantastic supply of taxis outside all the time or I'm somewhere where the trains work perfectly I was in South Korea two weeks ago the trains are clockwork they're incredible and that kind of sort of multimodality do I take the train and then a car or do I take the car a much further direction it's it's a very different mindset where you know things work really well, versus where I'm not convinced if I'm going to be able to find a taxi. The train's often delayed. There's traffic jams all the time. So, and I don't know how you solve that because it's a much more macro problem. But reliability and 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 smooth customer journey for me is the way that you can really drive acceptance of the uh, customer acceptance of multimodal journeys.
2: And I suppose my interest, so I agree with that, but what I'm interested in is how do you get better join up across the modes? So the modal operators are talking and sharing so that actually as a customer, I can go to one app and you as modal operators can give me my best option, not the best, the, the, the not the best option for your modes. Like, how do we do that?
4: I, mean, I think the greatest innovation in smart cities that I have seen is the ability to use my credit card across all forms of London transportation. It's fabulous. It feels like it's not that hard which is probably why it's a great product it probably is very hard because everyone's putting their hand in the pot as to how much they've provided versus another provider um chris will have a much more sophisticated answer than than i do because the the software backing of it all but it's those kind of easy touch points right if i know that i'm going to use my same credit card all over london all day and i don't need to worry about whether i'm saving money or not because the system works it out at the end of the day that kind of customer convenience really is is a key driver for me. Chris will have a, a yeah. Better
3: I agree respect. with that on the uh, on the contact. I forgot what it's like to have to buy a bus ticket and it's just going to other cities that doesn't exist. has become a much more painful experience. So I completely agree with that. Um, we've recently been working a lot in the in Uber in the UK uh, around we we'll calling Uber Travel, which is to do kind of what you're describing, trying to bring other forms of transport into the app, allow people to use the account they already have, the payment details they already have um, but book things other than a car. So, you know, you can book, you can get a taxi, but you can also rent a car. You can book a train, you can book a coach, you can book a flight. Um, you can use a bike or a scooter, um, where those are allowed, you can go on the Thames Clipper here in London. The theory behind that is that, um, there are lots of different circumstances in which one or many of those things are going to be right for the individual who's making that journey. Um, our um, point of difference is to be the the single interface, to not have to have accounts across all of those different things, to not have to make your own complicated decisions um, and to try and be that aggregator of those services. Is there still a long way to go in terms of making that seamless? For sure. Yeah. Um. But it does feel like it, it's useful to try and create spaces in which people can um, join journeys up and think about how they go long distances particularly and not have to rely on their own personal car um, or a car that's going to, um, you know, cause a lot of emissions to get from point A to point B, particularly if you're moving between cities. Um, yeah, you know, As you go across the country, a car is very rarely going to be the most environmentally friendly way to get there, even if it is at the moment often, unfortunately, the most convenient.
2: And so picking up on your point of you're on a journey, there's still a long way to go. What would be helpful to accelerate on that journey quicker?
3: I think it's the I think it's 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 the ability for those things to be m- more seamlessly integrated. And I think you know, we can do the work and should do the work to make it feel more effortless as a consumer. That's what a great consumer experience is about. Um, but it's still pretty complicated in the back end. And so the extent to which we can um, move to a, a more and more integrated network, I think it makes it easier and easier for people to to use it in a in a seamless way and have the kind of experience we we're just describing in terms of getting across London.
2: Great. Right. Thank you.
0: I, th- I think um, sort of building on that, I'm, I'm reverting back to the kind of what does the future look like? Um, I had talked about elevated and it being data-driven evaluation type stuff. And I think, you know, there is a heck of a lot of data out there. Not all of it is open. Some of it's open, but it's not in the same place. So we've got to get the bus data, taxi data, bike sharing data, all the car sharing companies, car rental companies, all the data needs to be in a consolidated point for anybody to access. And I mean, anybody to access people who are a lot smarter than me who can build scenarios, build models. You know, we, we do quite a bit of what we call scoping with our clients. And, and from that, we ascertain the potential within an organization to travel more sustainably. And that does lead actually to conversations sometimes with public transport operators, because we can see clusters of people. That are just outside of scope for for going on public transport it's not quite you know you've got a job on your hand if it's going to be an hour on the bus and 20 minutes in the car it's it's too much of a gap for somebody to to actually seriously consider the bus but we can start to see clusters that says actually public transport operator maybe if you can just do a bit of rerouting, you can pick up all those people and then we can talk to the uh, employer and say you might want to incentivize a little bit the bus travel for that to get those people working to get that running We've got other clients where they've actually put in additional mobility service operators, new services, new lines that actually are doing the job where public transport isn't. So data, getting it all together and then getting smart people to actually work out what to help, help to do with it.
2: A couple of builds for me on that one. If I start with like helping, you were talking about helping organisations to think about our routes differently. What do you see as support that the local authorities need? Because I can imagine you go to them, have those conversations. But does it get actions? Like what support do you think we need to give more of? Uh,
0: they need to come to events like this. Yep. There's not enough of them here. I think I've spoken to two so far right. uh, in one and a half days. And there's 1,500. I'm um, just talking in the UK context, but there's 1,500 councils. So there's not enough of them here. Uh, I think actually there's lots of things that they can do that they're not doing. I mean, again, UK specific, but uh, who's heard of the workplace parking levy in Nottingham? That's 10 years ago that was launched. Has any other council done it? No. Why not? Oh, it's difficult. Yeah, but this is why we need to do it because it is difficult. You need to take take action. You need to be bold. You need to be ambitious. So I think there's a lot of kind of like looking for private companies to help local authorities. Local authorities need to help themselves right. and then call on the services of fantastic companies to then deliver the right solutions for their city or their region.
2: And so then, Meg, Graham, my second point, but over to all three of you, data, data to customers, letting them understand the impact of their journeys in terms of carbon footprint. Heard a lot yesterday around, we need to give people more data so that they can see up front the impact of their choices, be it food, be it travel. Like, What's your perspective on that in terms of pushing more data to consumers? Because there's loads of apps out there, not necessarily integrated. It's almost too much choice. How do you think we address that one?
0: This,
3: this guy can go first in data. Come on. Um, being presented as some sort of data yeah. expert, that's certainly a long way. You've got the most the, data. Uh, <laughs> a lot of amusement internally if that was uh, people knew that was the case. Uh, so I think um, having people be informed is clearly important. I think you need to think hard about how you do that. Otherwise, it's just not helpful cool. and useful. Um, we've been thinking a lot about how we surface through the Uber app, the emissions associated with the trips that you take. Um, in a way that is useful to help people make choices and informative, but not just more noise um, in the system. There's already a lot of decision factors in there. So I think um, a lot of that is available, certainly available for individual companies to use, um, but you should be conscious about how you're um, sharing it in a way that actually helps inform decision-making, not just is another another thing to factor into or already a complicated uh, decision. The other way to think about data Um, to come back a little bit on the point you were making about local authorities, is more in aggregate. So Mm -hmm. we've been running a project, for example, with three boroughs here in London where we share um, more aggregated data in terms of journeys that are happening across the city and demand for uh, electric vehicle charging where we're seeing drivers transition to EVs. We've seen a big uptake in EVs. We've got big goals in terms of how quickly we want to electrify all of the um, drivers that that are living and working in London. That puts demands on... Um, the ability to charge, particularly, and we've heard about this in the last panel. You know, a lot of people don't have access to charging at home. They need public infrastructure. Um, it is the uh, the job of of local authorities often to to provide that. We can play a role. We think um, in surfacing that demand, how it's changing, how it's likely to evolve in a way that's useful to inform decision making at the more aggregated level. We've built a tool that um, allows you to understand. Where that, where that demand is manifesting and how it's likely to change over time um, and, and funded some pilots to try and put some of that infrastructure in the ground in some of the communities in, in this city which are furthest behind in terms of um, infrastructure today. So there's kind of two levels. There's the individual level, sure, but then there's also um, looking at things that are more systems level yeah. um, and how people make decisions on that basis, I think.
2: And are you finding, Chris, so you're talking about sharing it in communities with local authorities and their yeah. services? Are you also finding greater connectivity with other organizations that you're working alongside?
3: Absolutely, yeah. So part of it is working with with the public sector, but it's also, you know, we work with a lot of private partners who are also putting infrastructure in the ground, for example. The thing that we can bring to that is often um, the the insight into where we think infrastructure is going to get used um, if it's sited in particular in particular places. Yeah. Uh, we have a partnership with BP Pulse, for example, you know, they they own the assets, they operate the infrastructure we're trying to ensure that those assets get used as much as possible and so we think very carefully about where you might cite them um so that it makes sense for all the different different factors so yes certainly a partnership in the private sector side as well as on the public sector side
2: great thank you duncan do you have any builds
4: yeah i think data on the micro level my perspective is is virtually useless i don't think you change people's behavior and unless you provide them additional convenience i'll give you an example my electricity bill over energy i have two choices i can go with whatever plan a or i can go with the green plan the green plan is three percent more expensive but it uses renewable energy click that every time easy doesn't require any benefit for me happy to pay the extra three percent to offset carbon emissions and feel like i'm doing something good for the environment if i get data coming in saying you know you're going to save 0.01 0.01 tonnes of carbon emissions by taking the tube, not the train. A, I don't know what that means. Like, is that great? Are all the African rhinos now saved? Or is it completely irrelevant to everybody? And two, I I, I don't mean this in a bad way, I don't think people care. I think people prioritise their busy lives and convenience. Unless the difference is so stark between choice A and B, you're going to go down the, the, the convenient route. So I think data is much more important uh, on a macro level, to change behavioural norms without the consumer knowing about it, than it is on the micro level. Like the Elizabeth line recently opened. You know, my choice is, let's say, a taxi or a, or a, a, a train into Bond Street. I now take that train into Bond Street because it's way more convenient and it's ten percent of the price. You know that. I don't know whether it was sophisticated enough back in the day when Crossrail was was um, conceived, but that's a very clear data-driven choice. There is X amount of traffic between London Heathrow and Bond Street. It is a huge infrastructure cost that takes many, many years, but the change in behavior for many people is significant enough to warrant that infrastructure, uh, infrastructure investment, not, not only from a sort of pound return, but also from the environmental benefit of doing that. So. I think, you know, m- micro data, very, very little impact from my perspective. I think using that macro data to change behavioural norms is the way to really make an impact.
2: Okay, thank you. I'm going to go to the floor, right? So if people haven't been asking questions with Slido, please do. Uh, I'm going to take a couple that we've got in already. So we've got a, just sort of 10 minutes. We've actually answered some without looking at them, which is helpful. Um, But the first question... and. Um, Pop your hands up panel Who wants to take it. Um, if 20% of transport emissions are created from work commutes around the transport, what does the transport sector need to do to engage more with construction around city planning? Graham, maybe do you want to go first with that one?
0: Just say that again, again, sorry.
2: What more does transport need to do to engage with the construction sector around city planning if 20% of the transport emissions are coming from work commutes?
0: Well, I think I, I think I mentioned at the beginning. It's it's about um, we've got to look for continual improvement in the services, and there is a pyramid of mobility that I think everybody gets. You know, it's walking, wheeling, shared transport, and then you know you're into private car. So cities cities understand that cities want that to happen. Uh, to 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 Duncan's point about the macro level data, that's. That's that's really important to kind of then drive through through those trends into into what is constructed. You know, I think uh, it's it's been disappointing to see things like the active travel fund. Yeah, the budget for that has been cut, um, but there's still plenty that can be done. And I think monitoring and evaluation, what's going on in the cities, and seeing how many people are now cycling, and then recognizing that, and then seeing where the points where it's not working so well talking to people about how talking to those who are cycling those routes and actually saying to them, how can we make this better for you? And then, then importantly, putting in the action. You know, I think, uh, it, planning takes too long. There's, we need to speed everything. You, you mentioned at the beginning, we need to speed everything up. If we see an opportunity, it needs to be, there always needs to be a fast track process. I would say where construction's concerned in cities to get these things done, react on feedback, get a great feedback loop going and get the stuff sorted.
2: I was going to say, Doug, can you love a view?
4: Yeah, so uh, my background is all construction and development. Before I before I started doing this, I think the thing, things like that are quite interesting, right? 20% of, of emissions come from construction traffic within a city. Okay, it's quite an interesting stat. What are you going to do about that? right? Do you change the routing of construction traffic? Do you change the hours that they can use? No, you still got the same trunks coming in. I think you've got to look at what the root cause of that traffic is. And it's a lack of innovation in the construction sector. Construction center, the stretch sector is are building blocks of flats, office blocks, the same way they were building them a hundred years ago. It's nuts. Name another industry that's that archaic. I'll tell you two, insurance and law, but most are not that terrible, right? It's, Sorry, it, it, is it, any it, lawyers uh, or insurers
2: in the room?
4: <laughs> it, it, it's, it's really, it, it's weird to me that such a big sector is so, uh, lacks so much innovation. And I think, you know, with all the focus on, on, uh, sort of net zero and carbon emissions, and, and this should be led by government as well as industry. If you target the root cause of that rather than the symptom of it, symptom being traffic and emissions, root cause being lack of innovation in the construction center sector. What can you do to reduce the number of trucks required into the construction center? where well, you can do modular construction. You can use, uh... Precast concrete, not poured on-site concrete. Traffic is, and I have construction sites at the moment, part of the problem is those concrete trucks, because they have to keep whirring, sit there idle on-site for two or three hours at a time, pumping out diesel. Can't do anything about it. That has to keep whirring, otherwise the concrete sets goes off in the back. It's about scheduling. It's about innovation. It's about targeting the root cause of some of these problems, not the symptom of some of these problems.
2: couple more to go. Bear with me while I just open the iPad. A bit of a topical one. Given France has banned short-haul domestic flights uh, under two and a half hours where there's a land-based ba- alternative, where do you think we should be going from a UK lens? Should we be doing the same?
4: But I, I, I absolutely think we should, but I also think it's the influence is, is consumer choice. I, I find it a bit weird because I would never take an aeroplane where I can get a two and a half hour train um, or a three hour train. But the it- France
2: point is they've banned it, haven't they? So they ha- they've they've taken away the choice.
4: Yeah, great, do it. Uh, I think it make uh, I think it makes sense providing, and this is a massive proviso. The alternative works, right? If you've got a train that has forty percent time reliability, that is not an alternative. If you have a train that is has ninety eight percent reliability, Japan ninety nine and a half, Dubai ninety nine point nine, South Korea ninety nine point eight, perfect. Then you've got an alternative. If you've got one that is beholden to unionized staff as to whether they're going to get out of bed in the morning that's not that's not a viable alternative
2: chris a specific question for you um is uber looking to incorporate micro mobility more heavily as a way to diversify travel habits reduce congestion and reduce emissions
3: uh short answer is yes
2: yep come up um, a bit more detail start,
3: i can add a little bit to that uh, we have a partnership with lime some of you will know um we uh, offer, therefore, bikes and scooters um, through the app as an alternative. Um, and we do that in a lot of cities across the world. And we're looking to grow that portfolio. We just launched a new partner in cities in Latin America. We think there's a huge opportunity to shift some of those shorter city-centered journeys, particularly in parts of the world where, frankly, the the weather allows, um, to more active modes of transport. And they're very popular. Now, obviously, there's there's things that those companies need to get right in terms of um, regulation and safety and how they operate. And there's been a lot of progress, I think, in that over the last few years. Um, but we certainly see it as a big part of the, of the solution. And when we talk about our goals to be hundred percent zero emissions trips in 2030, we mean a combination of electrified passenger cars and other forms of transport, but also bikes and skaters.
2: Thank you. Five minutes to go. Any more questions, get them in. Otherwise I'm going to ask the last one here. Um you've all alluded to the uk's lack of vision and speed to do this if you were individually writing the uk's new zero carbon transport strategy what one aim policy or regulation would you include
0: great question uh, yeah. go
2: on graeme you go first
0: I, th- I think there's there's going to be lots of things but i think you know your top one from our again from mobility ways kind of view it's it's really working with businesses if you look at what's going on I mentioned France already. France has been mentioned twice now, but, you know, France have uh, any company over 100 employees needs to have a mobility plan, a designated mobility manager is reportable, is actionable. Spain are following the same. Any company with over 500 employees needs to have a sustainable travel plan. We need that. So
2: it's mandating
0: that... Mandated. um, Yeah, and then obviously we've got the um, corporate CSRD the EU directive that's come through now, as a, I think there's ten thousand non-EU companies that will be affected by that. About ten percent of them being UK. It's coming. It's it's the the directives. the The, the pace of where it's coming is coming. I would just love the UK to just go. Okay, we accept all of this stuff, stuff is happening. This is what we have to do, and and take take note of what's going on in the rest of the world, and actually mandate.
2: So learn from others and do learn from okay.
0: others take best practice.
2: So Chris, from your lens, what one policy or reg if you could have a wish list, be king for a day, what would be the one you would ask for?
3: I think the the thing that I think is most crucial for our success and for the pace at which we move is the capacity to deliver. Um, we often hear commitments made around funding, policies, sometimes quite long-term goals, you know, bans on certain things at some distance in the future. The piece that often feels like it's missing is investment in the teams on the front line who need to deliver it. And I'll go back to that example I had before in terms of the work we're doing with boroughs here in London in, in in growing infrastructure. The key barrier often is not a willingness or even, frankly, the, the capital. Um, the money is often there. It is a capacity yeah. and an expertise to execute the programs at pace. Yeah. Um, and if you can give people big checks, but if you don't have the people on the ground yeah. who know what they're doing to deliver it, Things take a long time. So I would Third focus on, on I would focus a lot on capacity building, particularly at the local level.
2: Great. Thank you. Duncan, yeah. if you're I, King for a day. What would you have? Um
4: I'd do a lot of other things first if I was king for the well, day, to it's be honest. A... Um the uh it, it's a bit of a build on Chris's actually. I would give much greater autonomy to planning authorities uh, and a much bigger incentive on them to rapidly decide on critical infrastructure for new transportation. It Mm. is insane that it takes six to nine months to get planning consent to put street charges in. Why? I mean, I don't understand it. Um, But all of that efficiency, all of that convenience, it's embedded in the quality of the core infrastructure that you have. Tunnels, railway bridges, uh, charging infrastructure, whatever it is, that for me is the key driver for utilization and convenience and it's incredibly difficult to execute on. So change the rules and incentivise planning authorities to make decisions quicker and give them more power to enable that infrastructure change.
2: Great, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it and enjoy the rest of your day.
1: To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.